analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Monday morning, beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops. we got a jam-packed show for you. We're going to talk to Kyla Lee with Acumen Law, debut a regular Monday morning segment. Uh, we'll also have Terry Mooring in studio, BCTF president-elect, and uh, not to leave the education issue alone, Education Minister Rob Fleming, who I had a chance to have a sit-down with on Friday. We'll revisit that interview. But first, we're going to talk about Seniors Care with the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, Daniel Fontaine, joining me in studio. Good morning. Good Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. So uh, first and foremost, uh, what brings you to my first city? Well, I'm actually, this is a first uh, stop in what we're calling a listening tour. So I'm going to be heading across the interior down to Salmon Arm tonight, uh, Penticton, Cologne over the next four or five days. I'm going to be talking to care providers uh, throughout the interior health region, as well as meeting with some MLAs yeah. um, and a number of folks talking about uh, seniors care, my favorite topic. Yeah. So uh, you were telling me something that the Interior Health Authority or this region when it comes to seniors care, or some aspects anyway, mm-hmm. um, there's some really areas of concern here. So uh, when you're coming in this region, you're talking to people, What's what are the issues that are top of mind for you here? The number one issue, uh, Shane, without a doubt, is the health human resource crisis that we're facing. We are simply not able to attract and find enough of, in general, healthcare workers, but specifically seniors care. Uh, my members are calling me literally on a weekly basis saying that they can't fill shifts. They're having a tough time uh, recruiting. Um, even those that are at the full master collective agreement rate, the same paying the same as the health authority it's just there are not enough people that are moving into seniors care it's the fastest growing sector in the province of british columbia and very few people know that what are the impacts on the ground? Like, I mean, if we're not staffing appropriately, mm-hmm. how is it being felt in our community? Well, what it means when you don't have a carry that's working in a long-term care site is that literally when you push the call bell, nobody responds. Or if you're looking to have more than one bath a week, that's literally what it means is you're not going to be able to do it. These are very, uh, we're a very hands-on uh, people-based business and, and sector. And we need to make sure that we have enough people there to actually deliver the care. And when you don't, that care does not get delivered. And that means that your grandmother or your mom or dad who may have Alzheimer's may not get the, the care that they need. Okay, so uh, we have a problem uh, twofold. How do we address it and how do we how do we deal with it in the interim between hopefully getting the staffing we need? Yeah. So how do we get that training and how do we deal with the bridge between now and then? Well, let me first say that we were chatting earlier about the fact that this is a crisis and if we compared it to something like the forest fire uh, crisis that we had last year, yeah. in many respects, I almost wish it was at that same level because it is, but we just don't see it uh, the way that we see it with a forest fire. We need government at the table. We need the health authority at the table. We need to make sure that they're working with us as a sector to come up with the solutions to be able to recruit and to get enough people to come into the interior and to work. I can tell you that we have run programs in the past. They've been extremely successful at getting more people either through the high schools or through new immigrants uh, to relocate and to move into the region. They've been very successful, but We've been encouraging government, uh, Minister Dix and and the health authorities, to sit down to work with us and to collaborate and to start looking at implementing these programs today, not tomorrow. Because the time for planning and the time for research and all this stuff was like 20 years ago. We are now 2019. uh, When the call bell is pushed and nobody responds, it means we haven't done a good enough job in recruiting people. And that's what I'm here to talk about in this region. Uh, Not just recruitment. I've talked to you in the past about actually doing some of the training in communities. You mentioned Mm -hmm. school districts. I believe the Kamloops School District has some role to play there. Uh, We have Thompson Rivers University, you know, Kelowna's, all those places have schooling uh, in place. Yes. Um, Are you seeing any movement about 
training people in community so they can learn a career here in this sector and then stay in their hometown? Not enough. Uh, the Ministry uh, of Health did announce some additional uh, spaces. I believe it was like 380-something across the province. Yeah. Nowhere near enough to address the issue. We have, uh, we're going to be releasing a paper very soon, probably within the next month, to forecast the amount of additional long-term care beds we need straight through till about 2040. Shane, when you see the number that we're going to be releasing and the amount of people that we're going to require to staff every single one of those long-term care beds, it's actually rather frightening considering that we don't have the capacity within our, tra our training centers, nor do we have enough people now. We have to remember that not only are you and I aging, but so too are the people working in the care homes. Our right. average worker age now is about 45, 46. Those people are going to be retiring soon. And we just don't, this is not a hockey game. We, I, we don't have the Utica farm team I can go to and collect, you know, players to right. come up. That's just not how it works in seniors care. You need to do a much better job of getting people trained and, and on the front line. What do you need to do a dramatic ramp up to get to where we need to be in, a, in as short a period as possible? I mean, in a, in a dream world, what, yeah. is that, what would that look like? Well, in the dream world, we would begin first by helping to educate the public that there are lots of jobs and that they do pay very well. So yeah. that's something that I don't think the public understands. Um, secondly, we need to make sure that we eliminate the barriers that people face. So once we've got them interested and excited about working in seniors care, oftentimes the, the barrier of the tuition, which can range from $6,000 to $12,000, depending if you're in a public or private college, that's sometimes often too much for someone to take, uh, even if it is just a six-month training course. So we're looking at trying to eliminate the barriers. We think the federal and provincial governments can play a role in there. We as a sector need to do a better job of making sure we, we uh, open up placements and we encourage and, and raise awareness with the colleges and the, and the schools and let them know where these uh, placements are. And I know uh, some of our members in the interior even uh, do things like relocation assistance. We have been doing that. We need to do more of that. And, and that's a collective strategy that we've put before government. Um, it was based on our previous program we ran. It was called BC Cares, yep. and that was run in 0809. Extremely successful at getting more people into seniors care. So I I'm here to tell you that although it is a crisis, there are some solutions. We just need the government and the health authority at the table to uh, to help us. Okay, uh, how is the Interior Health Authority reacting to or handling this? In your in your opinion, mm -hmm. Are they doing a good enough job on that front, or what's going on? There? You know, I think we could collectively all be doing a better job, and I'm putting myself and our sector in there as well, as well as the health authority in the province. We are not doing enough, and and I'll be the first to admit that even our sector is not doing enough. So I th I'm going to be meeting with folks from the Interior Health Authority tomorrow. We're going to have a I, I think a very open and frank dialogue. In fact, I've asked our entire board of directors to come back into Kelowna this summer. We're going to be spending a few days here. Yeah. I want everybody to see and to hear from the folks who are working and the care providers in this region about some of their uh, their issues. And hopefully that'll raise this awareness within the Interior Health Authority as well as the Ministry of Health. Uh, we often talk with you in terms of, of care homes and such, but um, there's a growing number of people in this province who are dealing with a loved one either in their home or you mm -hmm. know their parents' home. Uh, and I hear those stories more and more as my generation ages into taking care of our parents. Mm -hmm. um, what are you hearing out there on, on the drag on people and, and how can we help them, whether it's getting them into a home or providing in-home supports to address that? Because I, again, yeah. I hear a lot of families who are really, really struggling with that issue right now. Well, they're struggling for a number of reasons. First of all, um, back to the health human resource crisis, they just may not be able to find the actual care worker that can come into the home. Yeah. We have purposely done this as a society. We've said that people should be allowed to live in their single family home for as long as possible. What that means, though, is a lot of home care workers that you need to be trained and ready to go and be able to go around uh, throughout the community. The biggest complaint I hear from seniors on that is the short visit times that they often can get someone who basically takes off their
their coat, um, you know, it talks a little bit about their medications, and then boom, they're they're gone. <laughs> so the number one thing we've been hearing from seniors um, across the province, not just here in the Interior Health Authority, is we need access to more services. And think of it when you're you got 24 hours in the day, and you you may be living by yourself as a senior. You may, if you're lucky, have an hour a day if you're lucky. Wow. Somebody coming in. So 23 hours, you're going to be on your own. And, you know, the research has shown, without digressing too far, but the research has shown that s- seniors' isolation um, is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's the health impact on you when you're isolated. And when you're by yourself and you only have maybe an hour a day with some interaction with the home care worker, that can be a real challenge. So we've been talking about increasing the level of home care. We've talked a little bit about um, these care campus models where if you do have a long-term care uh, site within your community, maybe trying to connect those people who are getting home care into the long-term care site during the day through adult day programs uh, so that they can interact with other seniors and then perhaps go home in the evening. We're trying to think innovatively, trying to think of outside the box of, of what we can do to use our existing resources better, but a little bit be a bit more innovative. The cigarette uh, example used, I assume that's just the, the mental health aspect of the loneliness and all that kind of thing, not having sort of a social point of contact. Yeah, the lack of social contact uh, because you're isolated is uh, the research has shown that if you were to smoke 15 cigarettes a day or be isolated and not have uh, human interaction for the vast majority of the day, the, the impacts on your both your mental health and your physical health are actually quite uh, yeah. incredible. So people actually end up dying earlier. They, they don't have the quality of life that they should have. So the thing is, we're in 2019. So we now know this. We maybe didn't know this 20 or 30 years ago, but we're now um, at least aware of the fact that social isolation is an issue and we can address it. There are absolutely ways to do it. But first and foremost, we need to make sure that we have enough staff to be able to uh, when someone needs care in their single family home that they can do it the impacts on that we call the sandwich generation it's the the, the people that have both uh, kids in school and also uh, elderly and aging parents and they're juggling the needs of both of them the sandwich generation um it it, it is i give my hats off to them i mean it is oftentimes you know people who are dropping the kids off at the daycare and running off to the care home or to go visit mom because her home care worker couldn't be there that day and it has impacts not only on the seniors but very much on that generation as well absolutely uh unfortunately we're out of time but uh always good to see you thanks for coming to town and uh, when you come back i'd love to have you come back in studio anytime i love (laughs) camloops daniel fontaine ceo of the bc care providers association we'll take a quick break on the other side kyla lee from acumen law will join us local news now radio nl 6 10 a.m and radio nl.com Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in, debuting what's going to be a regular Monday morning segment on the show. Uh, Real pleasure to welcome Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. How's the weekend? Um, it was good, busy. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to try really hard not to talk about your taxidermy hobby because I'm weirdly fascinated by it. Uh, and that picture of your living room is insane. So anyway, <laughs> uh, Kyla, um, 
first uh, topic, because uh, you specialize obviously in, in uh, breathalyzer, drunk driving, and uh, to some degree uh, cannabis as well. Uh, but an interesting case popped up in Ontario where a 27-year-old Kitchener woman was acquitted of drunk driving charges. Uh, the defense in that case was a necessity case, basically saying that uh, she was at risk uh, in a violent attack and thus uh, was justified in, in driving her car. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. I thought that was a sort of a fascinating case. She was drunk, but she drove, and the judge said, in this case, that's okay. Yes. Um, basically, the law excuses acts that are not voluntary in nature. So if you are in a position where you have no choice or no other reasonable alternative available to you but get behind the wheel of your vehicle and drive, then you can raise the defense of necessity. It's a really rare defense in impaired driving cases because it basically has to be a situation of life or death, as the, the judge found it was for this woman, before the defense can be successfully argued. Um, but she was successful in persuading the judge that uh, the risk of her being uh, essentially assaulted and potentially killed by the people that were um, attacking her outweighed the risk of her driving less than a kilometer to the nearest place she could pull over and safely park. Now, how does the the, the argument work? Because there might be some people now have the potential to be like, oh, oh, <laughs> uh, I've been busted for drunk driving, and then say to the officer, oh, well, you know, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, my life was in danger back there. I, I had to do this. Um, what sort of separates that as an excuse versus the legal burden of proving, okay, listen, my life was genuinely in danger, drunk or not, I had to get the hell out of there. You have to establish three things. So one of the things you have to establish is that there was a legitimate threat to your health or safety. So you need to bring some evidence to court to show that there was that, whether it's um, whether it's witness statements or whether it's your own evidence and that you testify about it. It has to be believed by the judge. You also have to establish that there was no reasonable alternative available to you, which for a lot of people, they're not going to be able to prove that. And you can't just raise it as a defense to drunk driving because many people have the opportunity to call a taxi or take a bus or walk away. Um, in the particular facts of this circumstance, she was told to get her vehicle and herself off this person's property or harm would come to her. So because the threat was specifically to her and her vehicle, there, the judge found that there was no reasonable legal alternative available to her. Uh, the other issue I wanted to bring up, and uh, you guys are, are looking for people, uh, as I understand it, volunteers to use cannabis or CBD, uh, quote-unquote, in the name of science and justice. What's going on there? We are engaged in some testing of the Dragger Drug Test 5000, so that's the roadside saliva tester for cannabis. We're going to try and find out whether or not um, people who consume CBD regularly but don't consume THC-containing products will cause false readings on it. There is some literature that suggests it does have a sensitivity to high concentrations of CBD. We also want to look at the level of impairment that people who are regular cannabis users exhibit, people who have underlying THC concentrations from it being built up and stored in their fat cells for a long period of time, and whether or not they're going to register a positive result, but pass the drug recognition evaluation test and be technically safe to drive. Our goal is to have these results published in some peer-reviewed journals. We have scientists flying in from across uh, Canada and the United States to participate in the research um, and testing, and uh, also to use the results potentially in a constitutional challenge if they uh, support our theory about the device. Obviously, they may not. 
Yeah, well, the device itself, I mean, uh, you and I have talked about this extensively in the past. It is highly suspect. Uh, a lot of police forces have, have chosen to just avoid it altogether and avoid all the legal entanglements that come with. Um, if we get a new device out there, does that throw a monkey wrench into all of that sort of science or no? Um, it, it does to the extent that uh, anything that we did with the Drag or Drug Test 5000, if the police aren't using it, isn't going to be very helpful for our clients. But if the devices are using the same underlying scientific process, which is basically an immunoassay um, analysis um, that reacts uh, the saliva with gold to produce a current, a very strange process of analysis that isn't used ever um, in any other type of testing. But if it's using the same underlying science, then the results would be transferable to different types of instruments. I wonder, I mean, it just seems to me that uh, we did take an extra year to get to cannabis legalization, uh, and then we go uh, sort of haphazardly with this drag or drug test thing, which is, again, so sort of spotty that a lot of police forces are saying, yeah, no thanks. Uh, and from your opinion, I mean, considering the seriousness of, of, and the, the profound shift we did in legalizing cannabis, should more thought have been put into, okay, we're doing this, there's going to be cannabis-impaired drivers. Now, how do we, to the best of our ability, you know, enforce the law here and um, address safety uh, with a device that actually works as opposed to what we got. Absolutely, there should have been more thought. Um, and the police were telling the government this at the early stages of drafting the cannabis legalization legislation. They said, we don't have effective tools. We don't have enough police officers trained. We don't have a good scientific measure of, of cannabis impairment. We're not ready, and you need to put us in a position where we can be ready. And rather than do that, the government waited until the 11th hour, approved a device that had never been put in the hands of any police forces, um, only trained about half the number of drug recognition evaluators that they needed to train in the you know two years that they had to get ready for this, um, they 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 dropped the ball on cannabis impaired driving research, and now we have no real consistent enforcement across the country. What I hear from colleagues in Ontario is that there's a, a huge um, amount of enforcement of cannabis impaired driving in British Columbia. We see very little of it. So it is frustrating um, that it happened this way because if there is a public safety risk, the public is being put at risk by the government's failure. And if there isn't a public safety risk, then individual rights are being put at risk by the government's failure. And neither of those things should happen in our country. And last topic, the bicycle lobby is making a push to eliminate stop sign compliance for bicycles, uh, apparently something already being adopted uh, in several U.S. states and taking a serious look in some others as well. Uh, what's going on here? What's at play? Yeah, so the, there's something called the Idaho Stop. This was originally developed in Idaho where they changed the law so that people who were um, riding bicycles were no longer obligated to stop if they encountered a stop sign. They only had to slow down and stop if there was traffic coming that had the right of way. Um, that's been adopted in other U.S. states. It's been adopted in Utah. They're in the process of adopting it in, in California. It's been adopted in, in Oregon. And uh, they're now looking at adopting it in British Columbia. There's been some discussion um, by the cycling community and government appears to be listening. Um, so we might see the Motor Vehicle Act amended in the next uh, few months or, or next few years maybe um, to eliminate the requirement that cyclists have to comply with stop signs. Fascinating. Uh, Kyla, always a treat and I uh, look forward to talking to you each and every Monday right here on NL. Yeah, thank you so much.
There we go. That's Kyla Lee with Acumen Law. As I mentioned, uh, the first uh, what's going to be a regular uh, Monday morning segment to, to discuss all sorts of issues with Kyla Lee. Look forward to continuing that uh, in the weeks to come. We'll take a quick break here on NL, get caught up on the news at the bottom of the hour. And next in the Woodford Show, we jump right into education. Uh, first of a double barrel, Terry Mooring, BCTF president-elect, will be in studio. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined in studio by the uh, president-elect of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Terry, how are you? I'm well and great to be here. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, no worries. So first things first, uh, welcome to Kamloops. What's, uh, what brings you to our fair city? Well, our teacher, provincially, our teachers have zone meetings uh, this time of year. And so I'm here to visit the Okanagan uh, zone. And so we have teachers from all around the area here doing some work and um, doing some planning. What are some of the local issues you're hearing about while you're in town? Definitely some of the local issues in Kamloops are around uh, recruitment and retention of teachers. Mm. Uh, I know that Kamloops uh, has the same issues in a lot of, especially smaller communities and northern communities outside the Lower Mainland, but it's in the Lower Mainland as well, where there just aren't enough teachers teaching on call to replace teachers when they're sick. And so what happens is uh, non-enrolling, often specialist teachers get pulled from what their work to fill in uh, to classrooms. And what that often means, unfortunately, is students with special needs needs um, end up having their programs cancelled or um, postponed um, and that's not fair because they need, um, you know, they have right to an education as well and so to have their programs um, not um, run is, uh, yeah, is not They good. take the brunt of the, mm-hmm. of the pain of the whole thing. Uh, so on that note, I know that's an issue near and dear to Glenn Hansman's heart, the current president. Um, what do we do to tackle it? Is it, is it a matter of kind of um, putting some incentives out there, paying them a little higher, providing some kind of you know I don't know room and board housing, mm-hmm. some kind of recom- uh, some some kind of financial recompense or no? Yeah, no. There's a variety of ways to tackle this issue, and uh, we participated. The BCTF participated in a recruitment and retention task force with the provincial government, and there were a number of initiatives that were recommended through that task force, um, and we um, applaud government for um, adding additional teacher spaces to. Uh, universities so mm-hmm. that there are more teachers that will be educated uh, and, and come into the system, but that's a long-term solution. And we need some short-term ones as well. So one are things like uh, loan forgiveness programs that used to be in place in northern areas and uh, are no longer. Um, that's something that could be looked at fairly easily. Um, but also we're in bargaining and uh, we need a competitive salary. Right. Uh, we hear of uh, teachers um, potentially being laid off in Ontario and, and we're Sorry to hear about that, um, but it's unlikely they're going to come all the way to BC, where we have both the lowest wages of all the Western provinces and affordability issues. And so there's lots of Western provinces that they could um, end up going to, um, and not probably not make the trek all the way to BC, unfortunately. So to sort of read between the lines, or should we improve the salary situation to put ourselves in a better position to lure or track some of those teachers here? Then or no? Well, it's 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 a fairness issue as well, but yes. Absolutely. A competitive salary is a must. If you're looking at recruiting teachers from other areas of Canada, um, there aren't enough teachers right now in BC, that's clear. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so there's got to be some incentives to bring people here. And uh, when you have the lowest wages, and it's not 
not just that we have low wages, we're the second lowest nationally. And so that's pretty significant. Um, how much of this can be dealt with in bargaining and how is bargaining going? Because on the wage front, the government has the 2 2 and 2 uh, provincial bargaining mandate. Uh, however, as we've seen with some contracts and probably more of interest to you, the doctor's recent uh, settlement, there are ways to deal with that that may not be directly salary involved per se, but ways to kind of find some workarounds. So um, I guess first, how, how are talks going? And B, do you feel confident you can address the wage issue with some of these workarounds? Yeah, well, we're confident that we're going to be able to get a collective agreement that um, works for both the employer and the union. And so we're optimistic that's going to happen. Uh, we're kind of in the middle of talks right now. We've been talking since the beginning of February, and we have sessions book until, booked until the end of June. So we have lots and lots of time uh, in order to get a collective agreement. And, um, and salary is definitely one of the issues on the table. And yes, we're optimistic that we'll be able to find some solutions to our really, um, you know, kind of critical issues around recruiting and retaining teachers, but also class size and composition is, is an area where we have lots of gaps to fill. Our court win uh, restored a lot of the language, but uh, there are lots of places that don't have those, uh, where students just don't have those kinds of protections. At the end of the day, will, do you think we're going to see a deal with 2-2-2, two, two and two, but then some interesting variations, as I mentioned, those workarounds, or do you know? Well, we know that other unions were able to look at salary grids and we're able to look at market adjustments and those sorts of things and so we're optimistic that we can get creative at the table and uh, find some solutions to these problems. Uh, but the, back to the rural teachers issue, can that can that be addressed within bargaining or is that a separate issue outside of? Yeah, no, the, the definitely all the issues around um, well, the loan forgiveness and those sorts of ideas uh, really need to come from government. That's not something that we'll bargain at the, gov at the table yeah. um, and so the, be the best that we can do at the table is uh, is uh, around the competitive salary and competitive working conditions. So if you're going to attract teachers from other parts of Canada, like you need to have both. <laughs> uh, and so and and we think that uh, students, uh, regardless of where they live in the province, should have relatively equitable learning conditions. Yeah. Um one of the district, or one of the things that our district faces, and you and I were talking about this off the air, is the the capital need. Um, we have older schools with with not much ability to, you know, find extra classroom space short of putting a portable on there. I know the government uh, has made some indication it's going to spend big time on the capital side. We have seen some announcements out there, but that's going to take time. Uh, how much the capital need or the funding for it, as far as guarantees, can be worked in, out at the table, or is that is that an outside issue as well? Yeah, that's that's an outside okay. issue outside the bargaining table. But we've been really happy with the announcements government has been made making around seismic upgrades and rebuilds and it's really nice to see that those rebuilds um, are not just directed in the lower mainland to see government come out to other areas like Kamloops for right. example and uh, and make some of these announcements uh, is really encouraging so that's gr a great job that government is doing around and I know it's been one of their goals around the capital side so it's uh, it's really great to see that. Uh, on the class size and composition you mentioned there's some gaps to be worked out to any particular examples of sort of what are the bigger challenges there or no? Well, we just have some um, places like West Vancouver is one example where they don't have any class size language at all um, be 
beyond the K to three, which is provincial language. Right. And so there are a number of districts in that situation, for example. Uh, and so we're looking um, to fill some gaps. Um, we knew that they would be there once we had our language restored. And uh, and so it's been a longtime goal of, I, of ours, and we've been sharing that with government um, for a number of years now. And so um, that's an area that we're really looking to pursue at the bargaining table. Uh, I know that I've talked to Glenn about this, and I'm perhaps you as well earlier on, but um, you have a finite deadline here. You want to get this done at the end of June. Whether that happens or not, we'll have to see. I mean, we do have the summer before the new school year, so there's a bit of a, a cushion there. Um, but with the class size and composition, it provides a, a very complicated twist on these talks. So what's your confidence level now? Talks have been going on for roughly a month and a bit. Uh, we got about three months to hit the end of June. Do you feel we're on track considering the complexities of the table or no? Uh, it's true there are complexities, but uh, I have complete faith that we're going to be able to work them out. Um, we, you know, it's, it's hard to say, uh, or certainly our goal, and the shared goal of both parties is to have a collective agreement by the end of June. And so we have lots of sessions booked, um, and uh, so there's no reason why we can't do that. Uh, uh, we're prepared to roll our sleeves up and make, uh, you know, every effort, uh, and take advantage of every kind of moment at the table um, in order to make sure that we get a deal and we've been doing that and so you know we're making progress uh, and that's a good thing and it's a different context at the table it's a different government uh, and so we have some optimism that we're going to be able to uh, work things out at the bargaining table. Um, the MLAs of this province recently got themselves I believe it's a 2.7 percent pay hike uh, I mean granted there's only 80 some odd of them so it's not like there's hundreds and hundreds of them but uh, that said it's a government that is saying to everybody else your union included listen it's it's not affordable to give you any more than two percent uh, a little hypocrisy at playing your mind or? it's a it's problematic and I certainly don't begrudge the MLAs from getting a cost of living increase everyone should be getting a cost of mm -hmm. living increase so if you look at the two percent offered to the public sector Sector, uh, that 2% will keep BC teachers the lowest paid in the Western provinces and the second lowest nationally. It's not going to change anything. And so when you couple that with the historical um, lack of progress we've made in terms of, uh, of negotiating wage increases for the last you know, 10, 12 years, uh, it really is compounding. And so um, you know, everyone should be getting a cost of living uh, increase at minimum in this province. Well, perfect. Uh, you've been more than generous with your time and uh, it's good to see you in person here in Kamloops. Thanks cool. for coming in. Thank you very much, Shane. And that was BCTF President-Elect Terry Mooring, who was in Kamloops and we touched on a number of subjects there. We'll take a quick break, stay on the education topic. On the other side, BC Education Minister Rob Fleming. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now and what you need to know to start your day. The NL Morning News with Howie Reimer. I thank you for your time this morning. The country is with you, the, the Broncos and the city of Humboldt as well. Thanks so much. We, we truly feel that support and are forever grateful. President of the Humboldt Broncos, Jamie Brockman. The most informed way to start your day. Howie Reimer and the NL Morning News. Weekday morning 6 to 10 on 610 AM. Local News Now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com.
Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, on Friday, right after the Valley View announcement, I had a chance to have a bit of a sit-down with Education Minister Rob Fleming. I thought it'd be good to revisit that interview and uh, touch on some other topics as well. So here's that conversation with BC Education Minister Rob Fleming. Let's get to the crux of it. Uh, Obviously, uh, a pretty uh, electrically charged announcement, uh, a gymnasium brimming with students and enthusiasm, uh, and on on a couple levels, some raw emotion as well. Uh, The specifics of the announcement aside, just on an emotion level walking into that gym and uh, being surrounded in this you've had about an hour to sort of process it uh, what was that experience like for you oh it was just an incredible welcome and and just to see how much this announcement today meant to the students and the staff here uh, it it, uh, it meant a lot to me uh, and Kamloops uh, deserves this um, they've waited a long long time to get school investment here and uh, it's really an honor to be able to as the Minister of Education come up and and making much needed investments here. This is the overcrowding here is significant. And to be able to announce that we've got a major new expansion to the school and we're going to get rid of affordables here. It was a great announcement and the reception from the students and staff here. I just can't thank them enough. Okay. Uh, you called it the worst kept secret. Uh, we've been banging away at details of this for quite some time. Uh, maybe share now that you can and the announcements out there sort of what some of the thinking was behind the scenes as you tackled all the factors in this thing and, and tried to decide, okay, are we going to knock it down and build a new school? Or are we going to do an expansion? Expansions ultimately what you decided. But uh, how was that journey to get to this announcement? Well, it's almost like having two schools in one now because the expansion nearly doubles the seats here. Uh, and the project uh, scope, while we would call it an addition, um, is quite complex. Uh, adding a brand-new expanded gymnasium facility, a second gym facility is, is part of it. There will be other improvements, uh, site improvements, that will be part of the engineering scope. And then there'll be an investment in the playing field. So, you know, really uh, uh, significant upgrades and uh, most importantly, 525 new seats to not only eliminate all the kids that are, uh, all the uh, portables that kids are having to study in now, but uh, room to grow into the foreseeable future. What was the breaking point between uh, saying, okay, listen, we're going to build a new school or, or we're going to build the expansion and get down to dollars and cents? Was that, was that, was the difference or no? I think it was just the best project, uh, the one that had the least amount of dislocation and the one that was the quickest to execute on. Um, when you look at the size of the budget, uh, it's, it, you know, it, it is like a new school, although technically it's an addition. Um, and uh, we wanted to make it sized right, so you, know, you don't just go to build to current enrollment. You need additional space because Kamloops for the foreseeable future is going to see more students. Um, and also just to make the project about renewing Valley View at the same time as um, making a significant classroom addition. Uh, as far as the work itself, uh, again, it's it's a pretty major project, and it's going to take a couple of years to get there opening in 2022. Um, what's the hope as far as uh, Valley View performing its function as a high school uh, and then the actual construction work itself? Well, there's always going to be some of the some of the noise and the inconvenience. Uh, and I talked to... Um, I think four phys ed teachers here, and they said, we don't care. <laughs> They're uh, looking forward to the new gymnasium and the project getting underway. And I think the district, um, look, they haven't had very many projects. Um, I think this is only the second one in a decade. And it's really the most major uh, project in terms of scope and money since uh, 2000 when Pacific Way Elementary was 
approved a long, long time ago and built. Uh, so we're going to do everything we can to make sure that uh, Kamloops Thompson School District uh, has the ongoing support of the uh, Ministry of Education's Capital Division, make sure that we bring this in on time and on budget. Uh, a list of capital needs I'm sure you're aware of in this district. Uh, obviously big, welcome news, fantastic. Uh, but in, in, a, in a real way, the district's going to take some time to celebrate, and then it's going to put a check mark beside this one uh, and decide on its next capital priority. Uh, I talked to the mayor a few minutes ago and said he's hoping that this is an indicator of more announcements to come. Uh, will you be back in Kamloops hopefully sometime the next year or two and, and have some more of the same down the road or no? Well, I think what I'm most proud of, and I think what will, you know, for for all your listeners, that shows our intent to continue renewing in schools. So we have a 2.7 billion dollar uh, capital budget before the legislature right now. Uh, I hope uh, even some of the representatives in the opposition would vote for that because that allows us to accelerate uh, school investment in Kamloops. They've waited a long, long, long time uh, to get announcements like today to, to keep those coming. Uh, it will help us uh, uh, meet the needs of uh, students, uh, families, and, and staff in, in districts right around British Columbia. Uh, we've already rolled out a billion dollars worth of investments just in the, our 18 months as government in, in new schools, uh, either expansions or new schools, uh, seismic upgrades. We're going to continue to do exactly that. And uh, and so, I, yes, I think, look, Kamloops Thompson has done an extraordinary job um, getting this project uh, through the business case phase to get to an announcement today, and we look forward to working with them in the future. Uh, some other matters now, because uh, since you're the education minister, what's your sense of talks with the BCTF? Uh, I, I'm not for any kind of insider knowledge, but uh, are you getting the feeling at the table things are progressing the way they should? Um, yeah, I, I, I remain uh, cautiously optimistic, and uh, I think the statements I've been hearing recently from the BC Teachers Federation leadership is the same way. The parties um, have been at the table all week. They will uh, meet again. We, we went to the table earlier than uh, any previous round of bargaining. Uh, we Both parties want to conclude by June 30th, so, uh, you know, I, I will leave the bargaining at the bargaining table because every indication is that, uh, that they're in a productive uh, period of discussions and exchanging proposals and, and hearing and listening to one another. And, and that was the main thing for me as minister was to set the table with respect for the teachers. The previous government uh, literally went to war with the teachers before, um, and uh, our government uh, wants to take a completely different approach. What's your sense about how class size and composition sort of impacting things again? Something that hasn't been uh, bargained in almost two decades now, and as respectful as the talks are, and as fast as you hope they go, uh, that's a that's a big suddenly something that's on the table that hasn't been in the past, and and may cause some complications, I assume. Well, it's 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 too early to tell um, how that will be shaped, um, but uh, we have said very clearly that the Supreme Court funds are um, are. Uh, are on the table. They're secure. Uh, we're not looking uh, for a reduction in any amount uh, that has been awarded to them. And, and of course, we have uh, enhanced uh, uh, what was put into uh, the agreement that was shaped by the court decision. Uh, we've invested a uh, billion dollars of additional operating funding in the education system. Literally, public schools have grown from a $5 billion annual allocation to $6 billion now. Um, that's good news. That 17% increase, um, you know, about half of it or more was related to the Supreme Court, but about half of it was related to new investments our government has made in, in the public education system. And as I look around North America and look at Ontario, who introduced a budget the other day, it's in stark contrast to where 
right-wing governments are going. They're going down the failed path of the previous BC Liberal administration, which was to cut funds, uh, you know, pick fights with teachers, and and uh, and really uh, drag the uh, public school system uh, into a place of uh, chaotic confrontation. That's that's not what we need. Our recipe for prosperity and giving young people opportunities to. Uh, find jobs and open businesses and contribute to, to society is to have a strong education system. You invest in good schools, you uh, you build a, a good society. Does that mean Ontario, you know, does that work to our advantage a little bit, Rob? I know that we've addressed a lot of uh, shortages on the teacher side, uh, but if there's some unhappy teachers in Ontario, maybe here's a chance to kind of finally address some of those other lingering ones and maybe bring them to a more appealing B.C., well, I, I think what I've said uh, earlier this week is that uh, Ontario teachers are more than welcome in British Columbia. And in fact, last year uh, we saw 500 of them arrive here. Uh, they've now got a government that has clearly shown their intent to uh, go in the failed direction that the BC Liberals took our school system. And uh, I, uh, I, I wish Ontarians well in terms of uh, being able to resist um, some of that. Uh, if if there are uh, teachers uh, looking for work, uh, districts around British Columbia are hiring, and uh, I think the teacher regulation branch here has been been getting really good at uh, recognizing credentials and certifying teachers from out of province. Uh, we'll fast track them. We'll uh, we'll find them jobs, and if they're interested in coming and living and working at BC. And last question on the on the funding review. Uh, this is an interesting one for this district, uh, which has a, an urban and a rural component. So uh, per, studying, uh, per student funding doesn't work the same per chance as it does in Vancouver. It's not a one-size-fits-all mo- uh, mo- uh, one model uh, from Kamloops perspective. Uh, looking at the funding model, Rob, when do you anticipate uh, having something solid and then saying, okay, this is what we're doing and we got everybody on board to do it? Um, well, we're we're continuing to take the time to do it right uh, in terms of reviewing the complexity of the funding model that we currently use and looking at modeling uh, a better one for British Columbia, one that works better for rural BC uh, and urban British Columbia, uh, one that supports special needs learners better than the current model. Uh, we have uh, working groups uh, with all of the major stakeholders, including the BCTF and parent advocacy organizations uh, in uh, looking at uh, various aspects of, uh, of, the, of the new proposed model. And uh, they have an opportunity to, to shape uh, what uh, sustainable uh, long-term uh, funding will look like uh, in BC. I, I think this is a uniquely new exercise in BC's education history. No other government has ever uh, invited um, our education partners to work with the ministry in the province to to shape what uh, what uh, education allocation will look like in the future. TF's pretty upset about the prevalence model. Is that still in the mix or, or off the table in your mind? That's um, that's something that was recommended to uh, be looked at by the independent panel review, but we're now into the implementation phase. So, yes, that's something that was re- referred to in the report, but as I say, we, we have moved the discussions now to the working groups. Those include uh, voices and perspectives from the BC Teachers Federation. So nothing is set in stone. Uh, really, the, uh, the, the work uh, that the working groups will do over the coming months are crucially important to see, uh, to see what changes we might make. And by the way, Rob, your government's doing it all wrong. You know Friday afternoons are for take-out-the-trash announcements, right? <laughs> I have to blame Air Canada for that one. Yeah, right. Okay, man. Hey, uh, congratulations. Uh, must have felt pretty good. And thanks for giving me a ring. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for your interest in this uh, project. Um, I, I really appreciate it.
appreciate that as well. That was BC's Education Minister, Rob Fleming, and that brings to an end this edition of The Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswa from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.